Hello and welcome back to the Wonder and Wonder podcast. I'm your host, That Wonder Chick. I hope you're doing well and keeping healthy wherever you are in the world during this pandemic situation. Um, and well, as we continue with the second season of the Wonder and Wonder podcast, we continue to discuss the impacts of the coronavirus in the travel industry. Uh, but before we start, I want to thank Brendan Josie for helping me edit the next two episodes. As you already know, the interview was recorded online, you know, keeping safe and social distancing. So the sound was a bit crappy. But thank you, Brendan, for helping me out, uh, clearing a little bit better the sound. I also want to thank all the amazing people who have been helping me carrying out this project, Lucas Djatkevich and Lewis Coleman for the for the amazing tunes they created. And also I want to thank Veronica Rinaldi for the amazing um, podcast cover. So remember you can visit www.wonderchick.com to read all of the blog posts that I've been writing to explain more of the travel topics that we talk about in the show. In those articles, you can learn more about the, the guests that I have on the show and other projects that we have done by the collaborators and myself. And not only that, you can support this podcast and blog by inviting me a coffee. You just need to click the support this project on the website and pretty much that's it. In our previous episode, we interviewed Heather Popelier, a Melbourne-based travel agent and Latin American expert. In this episode, Heather and I discuss how tourism can alleviate the economic impacts that have resulted from coronavirus. But it's not only about how tourism can potentially help alleviate those impacts. It's also about how we as travelers can help the industry. As travelers, we have a major effect on the industry when, obviously, when we'll be able to travel again, from the choice of destination to the choice of travel agent. How do you think tourism can alleviate this in the after after this crisis? Um, well, I mean, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of problems with international tourism, and I know there's a lot of uh, critique on, um, you know, well, over tourism is is a big one. Um, you know, the the volunteerism model, which is imperfect as well. Um, but as imperfect as those uh, as tourism may be, it still does have a lot of potential for good. Um, and certainly for pouring money into communities where there would otherwise be no money. Um, I think when tourism, when international tourism does start up again, um, we all need to be really focused on getting money back into local communities in the most direct way possible. Um, and that means that making sure that your uh, tourist dollars go to support local people with local businesses, um, yeah, and I guess, uh, you know, trying to, to get involved in some of these initiatives. Um, I mean, there's, there's millions that, you know, the, the elephant camps, like you were talking about in your other interview, um, whether it be, uh, we got an email this morning from a, um, a hotel in Peru that's owned and operated by uh, the local community, and they also run a school for disadvantaged and disabled children as a side project. You know, all the money from the hotel is used to support this project. So I guess seeking out those little businesses that have these kind of projects um, and giving them all the support that we can. Yeah, yeah, like choosing, obviously, to try to help as much as possible when you can actually travel, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, I think most people who travel 
um, would already have a, well, I guess you would hope that they have a bit of a global consciousness as well. Um, and, and that's, you know, travel is really about connecting with other people, uh, learning about other cultures, um, and I guess trying to, to have the most positive impact you can um, by being in somebody else's country and somebody else's home. Yeah. So, for example, you mentioned like there's been like a lot of crisis. Obviously, not like this one because this is unprecedented. But you mentioned the swine flu in Mexico, like in 2000. I think it was eight or seven or something like that. Uh, how does it compare? Obviously, it wasn't as big or spread out as as this one. But at the time, do you remember like with what happened with the people traveling in Mexico? What was the general sort of idea or You know? Yeah, I think, um, I guess it's, it's difficult to, to try and bring up those feelings of how terrifying that was then compared to now. Um, with everything that's happened previously, whether it be, you know, Zika in Brazil, swine flu in Mexico, the, the problems were always so localised that they were very easy to get around. Mm -hmm. um, you know, swine flu in Mexico, I think, was mainly restricted to sort of more rural areas. Um, so in that sense, uh, for international tourists, it wasn't such a, a problem. Mm -hmm. um, it was also that anyone who had a trip planned to Mexico could opt to go to Guatemala instead or, or maybe just travel to the United States in that, uh, in that circumstance. Some people changed their trip to Cuba instead of Mexico, you know. So although it was disruptive, it was nothing in comparison uh, to coronavirus. Um, Zika, for example, you know, The majority of our clientele uh, are older people, I would say, probably in the 50 to 70 range, mostly. Um, so, you know, it's very rare that we would have women of, of childbearing age travelling to South America with our company. So Zika was also not really a problem from, um, you know, from our clientele's point of view. Um, but this is really one of those all-encompassing things that, you know, even if you discard the illness, simply the, the government restrictions in place just mean it's impossible. Yeah. yeah, I guess I guess that's one of the things that is like, I think every time I think about it, it's, it's just historical to think that this is a crisis that absolutely everybody is being affected. No matter the nationality, no, no matter the ethnicity, everybody is at risk at this exact moment. Yeah. So I think in, when, when I think about it in these terms, it's just mind-blowing because it is, it is completely out of this world. Yeah, yeah, it's bizarre. I think... I mean, that's probably one of the things that make it that makes it so um, like it's it's very scary on the one hand, but I think the fact that it is something that's affecting the entire globe, um, in my I know it also makes it easier to handle in my mind as well. You know, it's like this is this is if humanity can't pull together on this one, there's no hope for us. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's hope we rise to the challenge. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, these, these are very specific sort of crises and involve uh, safety and health, health safety. Uh, what about like other crises that have happened, like the earthquakes in Mexico like two years ago, or the hurricanes in the Caribbean, or I don't know, even, you know, the bushfires here in Australia two months ago? Like, how, how, You know, what's the response to those kind of external crises or 
So certainly um, in terms of uh, ones that have happened in Latin America, so um, the, the hurricanes in the Caribbean is probably a good example of the earthquake in Mexico. Um, the ground operators we work with over there are always really positive in terms of helping us find channels for donations. Um, the, the fires in Chile, the earthquake in Mexico, we were able to contact ground operators over there and find out the best way for us to, uh, to raise money through local networks here in Australia, you know, just within the, the office, within our own office. Um, and because of those, those networks over there as well, it's, we're also able to stay kind of ahead of the game in terms of information. Um, because the, you know, as amazing as 24 hour news is, um, stories do tend to get lost and of course you never know whether what you're reading is 100% correct or accurate. Um, so having those people on the ground to communicate with and to tell you the real life up to the minute situation is, is super important as well. Um, you know, a lot of the images that came out of, of, uh, of, the, Car of the Caribbean after the hurricanes or of Mexico after the earthquake were these really catastrophic um, sensational kind of images, which of course sells media really well, but our people in Mexico City were telling us, you know, this area is really badly affected, but where our office is fine, you know, they, they give you a perspective that's a little bit more rounded. Um, you know, a great example is Australia with the bushfires. We had relatives contacting us from Europe, terrified that, that Melbourne was burning to the ground. They'd seen these absolutely horrendous images on the news, and, and it was horrendous what was happening. Um, but it's important to keep in perspective where these events are happening um, and how they're affecting people on the ground as well. So, yeah. There was a lot of misinformation spread about the fires in terms of how much of Australia was on fire, um, which was hugely damaging to international tourism here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course the fires were absolutely unimaginable. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's really important to get the perspective of people on the ground and to understand how it's actually affecting local people um, rather than just absorbing the news. Yeah, yeah. And then there's this other side of the tourism industry that there's a lot of people who are interested in visiting sites that are going through all these situations. Maybe not natural disasters because obviously you can't really anticipate to have disaster like that, especially earthquakes and I mean maybe hurricanes because you can see them. Like, there's yeah. tools to see them. Earthquakes are, are very hard to, to anticipate. Uh, but then there's other like crises, like social and economic crises that a lot of tourists are eager to see, like what's going on with social inequalities, for example. Uh, I don't know, have you had any experience of people wanting to travel maybe to places where, I don't know, maybe slum tourism, maybe in Brazil or, and then, the risks that they face when they when they want to travel there? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, that's another really contentious uh, aspect of tourism, I suppose. Um, the favela tours, like you mentioned in Brazil, um, and I know they, they do similar things in, in India as well, visiting the slums around Mumbai. Um, I think those kind of projects have the potential to be positive. Mm -hmm. um, but perhaps too many people approach them as a bit like a human zoo, you know, sort of going in to, to see how the other side lives, if you like. Um, 
But I mean, I think certainly the intention with those projects is, is positive, you know, it's providing a source of income for people who perhaps wouldn't otherwise have. Um, but I think too often it's, it's more like looking through, a, looking through the glass, you know, you're not really engaging with people, you're not really um, exchanging anything with, with the local people, you're just sort of going in, taking a few photos and getting back on the bus, you know. Yeah. Um, but there's uh, the the favela tours in Rio. Well, the, the ground operator that we work with, they've actually been suspended for some time now um, mm -hmm. because of the safety issue. Essentially, they could no longer really guarantee that tourists were going to be safe going into those areas. Which <laughs> is um, quite sad. Um, yeah. I guess sort of heartening from our perspective to know that there is uh, quite a, a, a large degree of oversight with these projects to make sure that um, you know safety is the number one priority, both for tourists and locals, you know, if bringing tourists into these areas is making them more unsafe for local people as well, then that needs to stop. So. Absolutely, that's a very good point. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so have, with, we're going back again to the coronavirus, I went a little bit out of <laughs> the theme. It's nice to talk about something else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to go back to the <laughs> Sorry. Um, we can definitely do another episode on something else. <laughs> so in, in, in this current situation, have you, so every, everybody got back to Australia already or did you, do you still have like people stuck somewhere? No, so all of our passengers are now back um, in Australia. The last two to return home came home uh, last weekend. They were on uh, one of the cruise vessels that had been down to Antarctica and had to cut the trip short. Mm. Um, so we were very lucky, well, I guess our passengers were very lucky and this is a big plug for the travel industry, um, a shameless one, but I think it's really important to mention just how um, informed passengers who book through, through their travel agents were. Yeah. Um, in many cases, we found out about government shutdowns before they were announced on the news, um, particularly in Peru, the, the operator we use over there is very, very well connected. They've got amazing um, networks and sources within the country. So we found out before it was broadcast, certainly in the Australian media, um, that the borders were going to be closing and that we needed to move people ASAP. Um, there were so many reports in the media over here of people who were stranded in, um, particularly in Peru, I think, um, who had no idea what was going on. And they were not able to contact the Australian embassy because, of course, the embassy staff were absolutely overwhelmed. Um, they were also told that there would be no consular assistance after a certain date because they were told, you know, Australians need to return home. We can't guarantee consular assistance past a certain time. Um, so there's a lot of real anger, I think, in the media of these people who felt like they were abandoned by the Australian government who didn't know what was going on. There was no way of them getting out of the country because they couldn't contact airlines. The air force were absolutely um, chaotic. You know, there was there was no way for them to uh, to implement any type of change. Whereas people who booked through an agent had somebody in charge of all their on ongoing arrangements. Um, you know, they had people like us in the background working well into the night, getting up at 4 a.m. to try and check flights. You know, because that that was the best time of the day for us to try and get ahead of everybody else. Um, having people picked up at their hotels at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. to be driven across the border into Chile before the, before the borders closed. So all those kind of arrangements that are going on behind the scenes um, 
people who booked through agents, you know, they were they were looked after. Yeah. Um, and under very difficult circumstances as well. And I don't speak just for us, I mean, but for every single agent I know in the business, um, they basically worked 24 hours that first week trying to make sure the clients all over the world were, were able to get home. I guess also like, like the, the main value of working with travel agents is that you have the assurance and the guarantee that you're not going to be left stranded in a place, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, should the travel industry survive this, uh, this incredibly difficult period, uh, I do think that, that we're going to emerge stronger for it because these stories are going to come out. You know, people who had um, a really positive experience in, in terms of, of being looked after, having somebody here in Australia to talk to, you know, having somebody on your, on your WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger who was reassuring you, making sure that you knew what was happening, um, you know, keeping people abreast of, of what, how things were happening on the ground. Um, I think that's, yeah, priceless, possibly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you're like me, you must be probably wondering when will you be able to fly again or what will be your next destination once the travel bans are lifted. Will you be traveling the same way though after this whole situation? I guess there's a lot of things at stake, especially maybe now we'll be reading really well the fine prints of the travel insurances. A really good point that Heather shares is how travel agents can support better a traveler being overseas when such an event happens. I guess as travelers and backpackers that we like to have our own agenda and do the own, our own research, sometimes we don't even consider having a travel agent. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see and feel you know, the reliance of a travel agent that can help you come home after, you know, if, if, if such an event happens. So maybe this, this is a, a good thing to reconsider. If you if you like traveling on your own terms, um, yeah. As we say in the episode, the coronavirus pandemic has drastically changed our lives in the last few months, and the travel industry is incredibly impacted by this. The United Nations World Tourism Organization has stated that tourism numbers could fall 60 to 80 percent in this year only. In only the few months that have passed, millions of jobs in this industry are at risk. And this organization has also stated that 67 million fewer international tourists can be translated into 80 billion US dollars lost in worldwide exports. That is massive. As millions of people around the globe depend on tourism, I can't help but ask how will the industry, and obviously all of us included, will survive this. Join us on the next episode and the last one with Heather to discuss this issue. Until next time. <laughs>